Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Rabina podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in a series we've titled Paradox, A Different Way to Live. In this series, we will uncover the profound truths hidden within these seemingly contradictory statements as we embrace the challenge to follow Jesus' footsteps and be a catalyst for change in our world. We pray that this message is a blessing. I hope that you enjoy the wrestle and the challenge that is within today's scripture. Um, And I hope that it impacts you as much as it has uh, for me in the preparation of this. So I, I studied at university PR and journalism, and so I have a bit of a unusual relationship with the news. I wonder if you enjoy reading the news. I wonder if it uh, is something that you do on the daily or multiple times a day. Um, but I ask you the question, I wonder what your relationship with the news is. I find that since I had to be so across it, we were told that in the morning you should know the what's happened on the world news and and be able to walk into work uh, with the current affairs in your pocket. But I now find myself with an interesting distance with the news, Um, purely because I think that when we engage in it, it seems quite hopeless. There is a sense of constant chaos or destruction or um, there's injustice there's just not a lot of great messaging that's happening on our news. But, you know, then there's that, that struggle within me where, as a Christian, I believe that I should know what's going on so that I can pray for it, that I can engage in um, the current affairs, that I can know what's happening and, again, be stirred in that sense of hope that we do have. And so, I don't know, I find myself kind of bit of back and forward with the relationship of the news. But what's interesting is the world that we find ourselves in today And what we so often see in our headlines um, actually resembles similar things that were found thousands of years ago. A sense of injustice, a sense of power, a sense of chaos, a sense of victims needing a voice, a sense of war and and battle. All these things, they're not new, are they? They've, They've been happening since the beginning of time. And in our passage today... Uh, We see, we're we're jumping in in a moment into Matthew 5, but just before that, in the early stages of our introduction to Jesus and and, and what he starts to do on this earth, he he refers to a passage in Isaiah 9 where uh, there's a a sense of, of breakdown of the culture. There's a sense of what we see today and it's defined as the kingdom of the world. And from this kingdom of the world that is painted in a picture in Isaiah 9, Jesus comes in and says that I have come to bring about a new kingdom, a kingdom of heaven. And that this is to be seemingly and experientially and hope-filled a difference from the kingdom of the world. I wonder if you know what the last word of the Old Testament is. Does anyone know it? What is it? curse. The last word where the story seems to end is curse. And here in our passage in Matthew 5, Jesus's first word in his his public first recorded sermon is blessed. 
It's a very clear distinction from cursed to blessed. And the one thing that has changed while the world hasn't changed, the headlines haven't changed, what's changed is that Jesus has entered in. And with the coming of Jesus comes the new kingdom of heaven that is not a kingdom of curse, it's not a kingdom of chaos, it is a kingdom of blessing. And this morning we're going to unpack what it looks like. This passage is called the Beatitudes, it's the very start um, part of the Sermon on the Mount. And people throughout all of history have engaged with this passage very differently. There's been people who have engaged with this part of Scripture and have said that it is hopelessly unrealistic. To live in such a way cannot be done. There's people who would say that whilst it can be done, it's very actually undesirable, that the traits that Jesus elevates are not worthy or admirable traits. In the 19th century, there was a philosopher called Nietzsche and he described the Beatitudes and the Sermon of the Mount as something that was almost like a slave mentality, a total hopeless surrender, something that was not that admirable, not something that people would want to follow. You might sit in those similar camps or you might be here this morning and you might approach it quite theologically. You might have a great understanding of what it means, but it might stay there. It might stay in our head knowledge and not actually outwork through our heart and our hands. It may not have been activated in your, in your spirit yet. These words have great power. Gandhi, he wrote this when describing the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the, mas- the message of Jesus, as I understand it, and it's, it is contained in the Sermon of the Mount, unadulterated and taken as a whole. If I then had to face only the Sermon on the Mount and my own interpretation of it, I should not hesitate to say, oh yes, I am a Christian. But negatively, I can say in my humble opinion, what passes as Christianity is a negation of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm speaking of the Christian belief of Christianity as I understood it in the West. Sobering, isn't it? It has the potential to bring people into the freedom and the beauty that we find in faith in Christ. But so often, we don't quite walk in it. It just stays pages that we like to read in the Bible. There's people who approach this text, and you might be thinking this as well, that it seems so nice, that it's gentle and sweet. It's a pretty piece of poetry that we find that Jesus kicks off his ministry. And you might think that it's not that challenging. It actually sounds quite easy and and great. And to that, it's interesting that Michael Wilcox, he says, talking about this part of scripture, he says, it is seen, first of all, as a remarkable reversal of values, where the people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world seems desirable. It's that upside down kingdom. It is that paradox in which we find ourselves. It's a reversal of values. And none of these things are our natural disposition. None of these things we will just naturally become as the world carries us on its tide of culture. It actually takes something greater than ourselves to be able to embody 
these things. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit and the, the substitution that we see in Jesus, which we'll unpack a little bit later. There's nothing just pretty or gentle or, or, or nice about these passages. They're incredibly powerful. It is how Jesus starts his ministry. It's what he declares as truth about the new kingdom of heaven. It's challenging, it draws us in, but it's beautifully freeing. So let's dive in. Matthew 5. He kicks off and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus starts his teaching and he uses the words, blessed are, you would never suspect the next word to be poor. How can you be blessed and poor? This is where this distinction comes in. This new kingdom that he is kicking off, the kingdom of heaven, it, is, it comes to life when we recognize we are in deep need. When we are poor in spirit, we have come to the end of ourselves. We recognize our lack. We need God desperately to step in. We are poor in spirit because we recognize the need for his riches to come in. I love the distinction that Timothy Keller makes. It made me laugh when I heard it. He says that Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, not Jesus are the middle class in spirit. You know, not blessed, sorry, are the middle class in spirit. The distinction is that so many of us, I think, walk around with this sense of being fine, having things under control, it all together. See, it is the poor who recognize their need. It is the poor who don't think so foolish to think that they can just control everything. They accept the grace and the gift and someone else stepping in in their moment of need. There is a great lack that can be filled by someone. But when you're middle class in spirit, there's a sense of, well, I've worked hard for this. I deserve this. God deserves to bless my life. And, and I don't believe that that's what Jesus is talking about, about the sense of blessed are the poor in spirit for they will inherit the kingdom of, earth, of heaven. It's saying you're blessed and you receive the kingdom when you, when you know from the very start that you're in great need. You're in great need. In Matthew 19, when the young rich man comes to Jesus and says, well, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because there's not a sense of need. There's not a sense of desperation. There's not a sense of allowing God to step in. He's got it all together. So am I saying being rich is bad, that having money is bad and that you should just give it all away? No, it's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the poor in spirit are those who at the very starting blocks, straight off the bat of Jesus' ministry, recognize actually without God, I don't have anything. I need him. Secondly, he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And I think what he's saying here is saying that it's, it's, it's almost a grief. It's, a, it's an internal weeping. It's a, it's a sorrow that we have 
when we've come to the end of ourselves and we recognise and see ourselves clearly that without him we can do nothing, that we, we are grieved by the state of sin in our own heart. We're grieved by the brokenness that sometimes entraps us. We mourn that, we grieve that because again, it's coming to God and saying, please step in. There's another layer of this as well where Jesus looks upon Jerusalem and he weeps. He looks out at the people and he sees such great need, both physically, socially, spiritually, and he weeps over that. He sees a fractured world and he recognises that the kingdom of this world is broken. And we join in his mourning of this. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness, that's a strange word. We don't really use that very often. What does he mean, meek? Interestingly, Jesus actually doesn't often give us a snippet into his personality traits or, or how he would describe himself. But we get a moment in Matthew 11, verse 29, where he describes himself as being meek. And so we see a model of what this should look like. And meek, sometimes we can think if someone is meek, they are weak. It's because they sound so similar. When someone describes themselves as meek, as Jesus describes him, do you think that Jesus is saying that he himself lacks, that there's, there's a weakness and a, a, and a, a reservedness to him? No, we don't see that meekness is being a doormat. It's not being a pushover. Jesus had a mission and he was very faithful to that. But he did it in a way that was gentle, that it was controlled, quiet strength, that it was not boastful. He was meek, but he still had a mission. And it was a beautiful way that he came not to rule over and... and, and and have pride in his arrogance, but he came to serve and to save. He was meek. It's something that is modelled to us. Next, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When you're starving for righteousness, that is when we're filled. I don't know about you, but for me, with winter, I am always hungry. Is anyone else hungry all the time in winter? It's just because it's cold, it's dark, there's nothing else to do. And you just think, oh, well, I may as well heat up a soup or, you know, it's, it's comforting. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are people who surround themselves with the things of God. Righteousness here isn't talking about uh, religious actions or coming to church just on Sundays to tick a box. Righteousness here is talking about right relationship with God. It's not talking about an act. And those who hunger and thirst for proximity with God, for right relationship, they will be satisfied. They will be filled. And I wondered what are the things that are taking away our appetite for God. You know, when you fill yourself up on something, you're not starving anymore. And I think in this world so often, in our culture, we are filling ourselves up and spoiling our appetite 
with other things other than our relationship with God. Mark Brickman, he, he beautifully painted this picture of the fact that we are, are addicted to our online feeds. We have news feeds, email feeds, social media feeds. And it's interesting that they're called feeds. It's a type of food. It's filling us. And the fact that we are constantly consuming these things might then make us question the fact that our Have we got space? Are we hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Or are we already full? Are we already full on junk? Are we already full on other things that we don't have room and an appetite? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Next, he says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy, it's that loving kindness that we have received in Christ. For those who are in Christ, we know that this is the mercy that we've received, that we don't deserve it. There's nothing that we've done to earn it. The fact that mercy actually trumps justice, because if it was up to justice, justly so, we are not made right before God. It is only through His kindness, His mercy, His favour, His blessing that we have received this mercy. We understand that it's a gift. And I think when we've received that mercy, we're able to then extend it to others. We know what we have. And then we see the brokenness around us. We see the need. And it's that overflow of what we've received that then we wanna be able to step in. To practically help people, to not just provide judgment, but to provide mercy. It's a beautiful gift that we have received. Then let us show that to others. Next, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What is he talking about here, pure in heart? I think about the prayer of David in the Psalms where he says, create in me a pure heart, O God. I think it's so easy for our hearts to become adulterated, our hearts to long for other things. Pure in heart means that we have one affection. We long for one thing. The number one spot in our heart is filled with God. The commandment around you are to have no other God but me talks about idolatry and how easy it is for us to just slip things into that number one spot and let God kind of go down on the priority list. Being pure in heart is having no doubt in our mind that number one priority is living with a heart for God, a heart for the things of God, to see people through his lens. Being pure in heart takes up the number one spot. Thomas Chalmers, he says that, you know, it's easy for things and other addictions and not even seemingly, they don't seem like addictions, but, you know, success or security or control or relationships kind of can sneak in. And he says that it actually needs to take an expulsive power of a new affection to be able to let go of those things. And I think for me, it's that sense of, I can just be persuaded by other things, persuaded to to have my heart follow them 
to be so invested, for it to take up all my time, all, all my energy, and kind of forget that, oh, I need to realign. I don't want to be distracted and have my eyes to the left or to the right, but I, I want to stay fixed on Jesus. And I ask the question, yeah, but how? How can I keep doing this? It always seems one step forward, two steps back, and my heart seems to want things in other directions. And I love this quote around the expulsive power of a new affection. When you have something that holds your affection, you grab it with both hands and you let go of the other things. There's this need for something new, something better. And that is where our affection for Jesus, if we hold it with both hands, we're able to let go with the other things. Colossians 3, it says to take off your old life. It talks about it in, in terms of the garments that are ill-fitting, things that you used to wear. Take them off and put on your new clothes of love, the new things that you have found in your relationship with Jesus. Put those on instead. Next, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. What does it mean to be called a peacemaker? I can think about a peaceful person who, you know, spends their mornings in that beautifully unhurried way and pours a tea and reads their Bible and cleans the kitchen and their kids do the same and, you know, all very peaceful. You can read it like that. Or you can think about a peacemaker, someone who would go into war zones to declare peace, someone who is willing to go into those conflict spaces, those conflict zones and declare there must be another way, that we want you to live in a peaceful way. And I think for us, it might be what are the conflict zones that you have going on at work where you can be a peacemaker. Where is a conflict zone in your family where you can come in and offer a different approach of peace rather than turmoil or chaos or fighting? Blessed are the peacemakers. It requires us to step in to the messy. It requires us to step into the hostility sometimes. That is the peacemaker's role. Actively reconciling people to each other actively reconciling people to God? What does it look like for us to be a peacemaker in the ultimate way to show people what it looks like to follow Jesus, to allow their soul to be at peace with their maker? What does that look like in our world? Next, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to spend a little bit of time in this one. It's the last one. And... I think because it sums up that this is a self-portrait of Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. These, this is the very essence and the very nature of Jesus. Think about him on the cross. Blessed are those who are persecuted. How could Jesus be blessed on the cross. Thomas Aquinas, he said, if you want to see the fullest expression of the Beatitudes, look at Jesus on the cross. It's a radical statement. Because like I said, when we see this tortured man, the one who they mocked, the one who they scorned at, the one who they threw insults at and, 
and abused his body. How can, how can we look at that image and equate that to blessing, to good fortune? How, how does that equate? And this is where it's a paradox, right? This is where it doesn't make sense. This is where we're confused by it. We see every single one of these beatitudes, these beautiful attitudes. We see every single one in the life of Jesus. And Jesus came to show us this example. This is the beginning of his ministry and his, his foretelling what is going to happen. He's giving them an idea of a, of a path to follow and an example. But as I was kind of spending some time in this passage and doing a bit of research, I, I really was challenged and moved by uh, Timothy Keller in the sense that he says, but is an example enough? Do we surrender to an example? Do we live our life based on an example? Because surely if we just are living in the wake of an example, gosh, that's a heavy burden to carry. Because how can I possibly live up to Christ's standards? How can I possibly walk in his footsteps? How can I do that without then the guilt of not being good enough, constantly messing it up, not being able to see the similarity all the time between me and Jesus? If I'm trying to find the power from an example, it's going to leave me wanting more. It's going to leave me falling short. It's going to leave me with a very large gap to fill. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is the fact that in each one of these beatitudes, Jesus has taken our place. He has reversed fortunes with us. He is able to say that you are blessed because he took our place. How can Jesus declare these things? How can he lay down the law of this new kingdom of heaven and say that this is a state in which you will live now? This is a state of blessing which is not conditional of if you do that, then you will. No, this is a state of your inheritance. This is something that you get to live by and experience the goodness of both now and in eternity. It's not just for what's to come. So how can Jesus say that blessed are the poor? He can say that because he became poor. He switched with us. He gave up everything, the riches of heaven, to come down as a mere man. How can he say blessed are those who mourn? It's because he mourned and he wept for the world that he came to save. How can he say blessed are those who are hungry and who thirst for righteousness? Because he knew what it was to hunger. He fasted for 40 days before he started his ministry because he wanted to have the mission of righteousness and right relationship before him. He knew what it meant to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. Jesus took your place in every single one of these. He switched with us. He did that by coming to the cross and saying, I am going to make the right, your relationship right with the Father. 
I'm going to make you a co-heir with me. You can now be called a son and a daughter of God because I have stepped in and made a way. I have declared the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the power, not the example of Christ, but the power that we know that he lives with us now. He changed the course. He changed the kingdom. He flipped things on its head. And like I said, none of this will just come naturally. We need power to be able to do these things, to give up that sense of false security false comfort, false hunger, and receive the kingdom of heaven. I want to finish with this precious story that we see. Uh, It's found in Matthew 26. It's in all the Gospels. But it's this beautiful story of a woman who came into a place where she was not invited to be. There was no reason. Have you ever walked into somewhere and you think, I shouldn't be here. She walked into the house of the Pharisees and she was a well-known sinner. And she came there because Jesus was there and she brought with her a jar of perfume that was worth a year's worth of wages, expensive perfume. And what she did with it was absolutely reckless. She came in and she poured it over the head of Christ. She knelt down at his feet. She did this beautiful demonstration of love. It was an outrageously generous, over-the-top act. And what she did is she was pouring out that perfume. She was pouring out her sense of financial security. She was pouring out that backup plan. She was pouring out something that she could have worn every day to make her feel better and beautiful. She poured that out because she saw and recognised the beauty and the power and what Jesus represented. It was an outrageous act. And you think and you ask yourself the question, how did she do that? Why did she do that? How could she live in such a way that was so reckless where everyone else in the room, as soon as she started to pour it, even take off the lid of that perfume, the aromas and the fragrance would have drawn the attention of everyone to watch her. And yet she did it anyway. She broke through probably every cultural norm. She threw out what the world would have seemed as very sensible to do all in the face of Jesus. Why? Because she understood these Beatitudes. She understood that she could live reckless because she knew about her eternity. She understood what was important in that moment, that loving Christ, being generous with her life, not, not being dictated by the world. She was able to live this out and so are we. So are we when we recognise that we have this power with Jesus. Not purely because he set a great example and not purely because he wrote and spoke this nice piece of scripture. It's a declaration that we get to live the rest of our days in.
It's powerful. I'd love to pray with you and just sense if the Holy Spirit is wanting to stir anything in us or just create some space for this to just settle in our hearts. So would you join with me as I pray? Oh Jesus, these words that you spoke thousands of years ago and are speaking today through your scriptures are pretty radical. Lord, we recognise that there is not much in us just as we are that help us to live like this. But Lord, with you and your power that rests in us, Lord, we're able to reverse these sense of values. We're able to see things through your perspective. So Holy Spirit, will you come today and fill us with that sense of freedom. Fill us with that sense of power in your spirit. Fill us with a longing to follow you closely. Come and convict us and challenge us. Speak truth and love and grace over us. And I just sense that there might be some people in this room who long to know Jesus in this way. That maybe your life, you've been thinking that He's an example that you just need to follow. You need to live your life good enough to be loved by Him. And there's a sense that God is actually wanting to say, no, no, I sent my son Jesus so that you didn't have to prove anything. He has taken your place. Through Him, you are able to be made right with me. And just as we're praying, if you've had that or are having that or sense that revelation and you're actually just wanting to say, yes, Jesus, thank you. I want to be made in right relationship. If that's you today, I would love to pray with you. If you're just having that sense of Jesus actually is speaking directly to you, it can feel. If that's you, would you mind just popping your hand up so I know who I'm praying with? Thanks. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Anyone else? All right, well, now we get to celebrate and pray with these people who are recognizing their need. They are poor in spirit. They need Christ. So would you join with me? I'm going to say a few lines and then you can just pray it after me. This is not a magical prayer, which now you are tick in. It's none of that, but it's a spiritual prayer where we get to come before Creator God and receive Christ. So I'm just going to say a few words and then everyone in this room is going to say it after me if you feel comfortable. So Lord Jesus, I thank you that you took my place. I'm sorry for living my own way. I need you. 
come and be my Savior, my friend and my Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.